Well, I'm used to picking up the slack for Chris. I don't know where he went. I mean, he's probably out on his bicycle or hitting a golf ball. But I'm Les Allen, and it's a pleasure for me to be back uh, to visit you all. And uh, I want to thank you for the opportunity for Big River uh, to attend and for uh, us to give you an update on the biofuels industry, which uh, is a good time to introduce uh, David Zimmerman, who is the president and the CEO of Big River Resources. Thank you, Les. Thank you, Les. Thank you, Nancy and Rotary Club for the invitation, and thank you, uh, Midwest Bank, Chris and team, for the, uh, the discussion this morning. It was really nice. Um, I, I do a lot of these public speaking events, and I've never been one to really prepare jokes, per se, and I was a little nervous about that, but then I saw my friend Sean Cavanaugh in the audience, and he <laughs> always has a joke ready so if at any point <laughs> no not not yet <laughs> yeah i know you do so if at any point it starts to get to a lull here in the presentation i may have to pull sean out of the out of the, out of the conference so anyway um in, in all seriousness um let's see if we can get this word it's not moving so can everybody hear me all right at this at this uh, level? So um, as Les mentioned, my name is David Zimmerman. I, I took over uh, the CEO role at Big River on January 1st of this year. Um, I have, uh, I've been with the company for about 10 to 11 years now, 11 actually in August. Um, so I'm well aware of the culture and, and I've been around the community uh, for, for several years. I grew up in western Illinois um, on a small uh, livestock and, and row crop farm. Uh, attended Augustana College. Um, I see some Augustana grads in the audience here. Um, and I spent a majority of my career working for Cargill uh, in, in Iowa and moving around quite a bit. But recently I've, well not recently, 10 years ago I moved back when Big River had an opening. Um, and I've been here ever since. So I did put a few slides together today. I, I, I don't, you know, I didn't know for sure what we wanted to drill in on, so I took kind of a shotgun approach. So um, if at any point something piques your interest and, and you have a question, just feel free to shout it out. I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm willing to veer off script at any time, so just, uh, just, just know that if you would. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover Big River a little bit today and, and who we are, how long we've been around, um, uh, some of the founding, founding fathers, so to speak. Um, try and give you a real broad overview of the ethanol, the bioethanol world, which, which uh, uh, we're calling it today, um, and some of the changes that we're seeing out there. I, I think everybody's seeing those uh, on their local media, uh, everywhere things with regard to liquid fuels and transportation and energy in general are just changing immensely right now. Um, some of those changes, like I said, uh, carbon management is going to be one that we'll talk about uh, briefly uh, here today as well. So um, if you look at Big River, uh, we were formed in 2001. Um, Les Allen being one of those founding members, uh, Ray Deffenbaugh, Andy Brader, Gene Youngquist also on this side of, of the river. Um, all four still involved with the company, all four still executive committee members um, and integral in some of the decision making that we do as, as a company. 
Um, we, began, uh, we began grinding at West Burlington in 2004. Um, 2007, we upgraded that plant. Um, in 2009, we started grinding at our Galva, Illinois facility. Um, also that year, we acquired the facility in Dyersville, uh, Iowa. And then in 2012, we, we acquired the Wisconsin facility at Boyceville, Wisconsin. So all in, we have 425 to 430 million gallons of ethanol production as a company. Um, you'll notice we also have grain elevators, which you, you folks see every day. Monmouth, uh, we, we have the facility at Sunny Lane. We have the one we call the North Plant. And then we have another facility out at, at uh, Gerlaw. Um, we also bought grain elevators in Alito and Edgington in around 2010 from Martin Grain. Um, so all told, we have about 18 million worth of, of grain storage at our grain elevator facilities and then additional storage at our plants. Uh, just looking at just some metrics here that kind of give you an idea of, of, of what we've seen for growth, 42 employees to 252 in 17 years um, with, with several acquisitions, uh, from one location to 10, up to four ethanol plants. And to me, the grain storage is really the interesting one here. We started out with 1.2 million bushels of storage at our West Burlington facility. Um, as we sit here today, uh, we have about 29.4 million bushels. So just to kind of put that in, into perspective, if you think about Henderson County, Illinois, Henderson County produces about 34 million bushels of, of grain alone. Um, so we, we, as a company, we have the storage capacity to take all of, all of the Henderson County corn and, and put it away. Uh, we do process about 145 million bushels of corn. Um, and if you look at our gross sales uh, from 74 million to 700 million to 1.3 billion in 2021, um, interestingly enough, the commodity values, even though they were lower in 04 from 2010 to 2021, and if there's any farmers in the room, this is, this is where you get to uh, air your grievances, but uh, the corn prices actually was lower in 2021 than it was in 2010. Uh, looking at the overview of the bioethanol industry, right now we have 17 billion gallons of production capacity. Um, generally, any refinery operation, whether it be crude oil or us, that you generally run 92 to 94 percent of your production capacity. That's what we've been running the, the last few years, COVID year excluded. About 90 percent of that goes into the domestic gasoline pool, and the other 10 percent goes uh, into the export market. So if you look at our usage over time, this is, this is the build-out that we just you've probably heard of from 05 to 07. That's when MTBE was made illegal in California um, and then subsequently uh, in other places. And that's what really ramped the usage of corn ethanol as a very high octane uh, additive to fuel uh, to replace that MTBE, which is uh, obviously very carcinogenic. Um, so a majority of the capacity and thus the usage uh, came in 05 to 08, 09. Um, and you can see we've since kind of, we've, we've since been trying to get past that blend wall, that E10 blend wall. Um, the COVID year really, really, really hit us hard. And now in 2020 or 2021, we started to recover. We expect 2022 
um, to see usage closer to this 15.7 billion number. So it's kind of on its way back, um, but we, we know we definitely have a lot of work to do to continue to get into that gasoline pool. Um, this, is, this is how much ethanol is in the entirety of the U.S. gasoline pool right now. It's about 10%. Um, so if you consider 133 billion gallons of gas in the U.S. burnt every year, uh, we're about 13.3 to 13.5 billion gallons, so right at that 10%. This is the blend wall you've heard about in the past, or maybe you haven't, but at an E10 blend, uh, theoretically you cannot get past the 13.3 billion gallons of usage unless you increase gasoline usage. Well, obviously, that's not, what, that's not as what is going on in today's world. We're actually looking at gasoline usage potentially going down as we head into the future, um, and, and people look for more efficient cars and more efficient motors. Um, real quick on our exports, you can see this is, it's fluctuated from 5 to 10%, but we do export a good portion of, of our ethanol every year. I think the high was 2018 at about 1.7 billion gallons. Um, so what's a hot topic uh, in, in bioethanol right now? Um, I think it's a similar topic in our discussion this morning at the bank. Um, the CPI and the inflationary aspect of everything that we're involved in right now is the topic. Um, it's driving everything up, uh, fixed costs, variable costs, if you look at our costs, you know, from 2015, and I just picked out a, a few here, two variables and a couple of fixed, um, you can see the, the, the differential, the size of, of the increase in our natural gas price, 66% higher than it was in 2015. To put that in perspective, we were roughly $3.50 per MMBTU for gas in 2015. Today, as I was looking at the market, it's around $8 to $8.25. So, it's a massive, massive increase. Um, electricity, similar salaries and wages. Maintenance is something that's definitely been um, pushed higher with the inflationary environment. Now, one difference to note here on our business versus, you know, somebody selling widgets is we, we are a commodity-based business, um, and I know there's probably some farmers in the room. We're price takers just like the farmers in this room are. We do not have pricing power on our margin. We, we simply are, are forced to take what the market will give us. Um, so recovery of these, of these increased fixed, fixed costs is, is definitely difficult. Just another quick look at uh, our biggest cost, our biggest variable cost, corn is about 65% of, of every dollar that we spend. So if you look at 2020, I mean, it was a good year for producers. You had $4 corn. We ended the year up here, start 2021. We're at five, this is our cash bid at our West Burlington facility. And I apologize, I'm standing in front of that, but that's our cash bid at our West Burlington facility. Uh, if you look at 2022, we started out at $6. Um, I think we've paid over $8 cash uh, at that facility uh, thus far this year, so. Now one thing, one thing that I get a lot of, uh, the, the common question I get is, the assumption is that $8 corn, we must be not making very much money. That's not the case generally. Um, an inflationary environment like this tends to float all the boats. 
So if you look at the black there, that is the price of ethanol overlaid with the, the price of corn. And you can see the, the obvious correlation there. So um, as corn has gone up to $8 from this $3.50 uh, plateau here, ethanol has gone from $1.50 up to $2.75 to $3. So that's kind of my broad overview on the ethanol side. Um, I'm just... If there's any questions on that, feel free to shout them out. Otherwise, I'm going to take a look at what's going on in the ethanol world right now. Electric cars are, are, are something that obviously is out there. If you watched the Super Bowl, you saw probably at least 10 or 12 electric car or electric vehicle ads. So um, clearly, uh, electric cars are a hot topic. now. Is it something that we are concerned about? Absolutely. Do we think it's the death of the ethanol industry? Not even close, not even close. We see several huge opportunities that are, that are emerging out of this entire um, uh, agenda as far as reduction of natural gas usage and efficiencies moving forward. But before I talk about those, I, I do need to dispel just a couple of myths about electric cars. They are not net zero. The, the, there is no such thing as, as a net zero electric car. Um, and I, I, I like this little cartoon. I think it does a nice job of, of uh, exhibiting that. Um, you think this would be intuitive to most people that the power for that car comes from somewhere. Generally, in the past, a coal-fired electric or a coal-fired power generation plant. Um, Here's another, this is, this is a lithium mine in Western Australia. This is what they do to the landscape when they pull that lithium out of the ground. Um, I'm just glad I don't live in that little town, I guess. Uh, so, electric vehicles, they're definitely not green. They, don't pr they do not promote energy independence uh, like we do with, with our corn-based our corn ethanol. <clears throat> the last part on this is all of these rare earth metals or tech metals that they're called, China controls most of these metals, um, whether it be the refining, uh, the mining or the refining, they, they control 80 to 85 percent of those metals. So I, I think that's something our politicians need to understand as they move forward. Who, who are we leveraging our future to? Uh, who, who are we beholden to to run our transportation fleet? Would I rather be beholden to um, Bioethanol made in the, in the Midwest, crude oil pumped out of Texas. Uh, I, I will take those over, over a Chinese master any day. That's, that's my personal opinion. But. So, like I said, as I sit here today, I'm not, I'm not afraid of electric vehicles. And, and even if you look at the forecast from the EIA on electric vehicles, um, 2030, they're still projecting that about 85% 8, uh, excuse me, 95% of all new vehicles are going to be liquid fuel some way, shape, or form, whether it be gasoline, diesel. That stat, if you go to 2050, is still 80%. So internal combustion and liquid fuels are going to be around for a long time, and we were talking about, about this again at the bank this morning. You know, the climate goals that are set that we're seeing from, from this current administration it's going to take a very diverse portfolio of things to make, that, to make those goals happen. The other thing is, 
it's going to take time. You cannot implement a change like that in 10 years <laughs> after you've had a, you know, a world economy and a national economy based on fossil fuels for 200 years. You, you, need, to, you need to give that time to change over. Um, and it, it, it's going to take definitely much longer than the 10 years that, that we've, we've seen allotted out there. So this is the actual impact that we're expecting to see from electric vehicles. This is the EI's number on total gasoline usage in the United States. So I referenced it earlier, 133 billion gallons of liquid fuels burnt. So if you look at their forecast as EVs penetrate, <clears throat> we see this go down to about oh, 125-ish, 124. It's about an 8% decline. <clears throat> Excuse me, and then it starts to go higher as you get towards the end. So yes, to the degree that we're tied to the liquid fuels pool, we would see some contraction in our in our um, domestic usage. I mentioned earlier we're seeing a lot of opportunities with these changes, um, carbon capture and sequestration. Now, in this room, I, just as a poll, how many are aware that we did sign on to a carbon capture and sequestration pipeline at Big, at Big River? So not many. Um, carbon scoring, market premiums, sustainable aviation fuel, um, we're also seeing the, the potential expansion of bioethanol into commercial, ag. Um, there's, a, there's a very interesting company out there called Clearflame. Um, and what they do is they take diesel engines and they convert them to run 100% on ethanol. Um, right now they've just signed a contract with John Deere to get into their, their ag and their commercial space. Um, let me see. I'm trying to remember what slide I have next. So going back to the pipeline real quick. We, we signed on, as a company, uh, an MOU with Navigator CO2. Um, I think it was two or three weeks ago. Uh, now, we'll try and negotiate definitive contracts over the next two or three months, but why would we do that as a company? Um, there's two reasons. One is revenue. There is, a, there is, in the tax code right now, it's called a 45Q tax credit. It's $50 per metric ton. There was discussion of that, that, uh, that tax credit going up to $85. Um, I believe it probably will. I don't know if it'll be in this Congress um, or a future Congress, but that tax credit is going to go up to potentially 85. So revenue, and then the other reason is um, clean fuel standards. Now, we don't have a clean fuel standard in the Midwest right now. We do have them in California. We have them in Oregon. Canada is developing one. What these standards do is they will either, one, pay a premium for an, uh, a product that has a lower CI score, and by CI score, I mean a carbon footprint, essentially. So they'll pay a premium for that product, or in certain cases, you could even be excluded from that market. So our long-term viability and, and the future outlook of our company has certainly come into consideration uh, with regard to the CO2 and the sequestration of CO2. Now, if you have a 75-point CI score 
and you can lower that PI score by 25 to 35 with one technology. It's, it's a very sizable drop in your carbon footprint. And ultimately, we feel like we're going to get uh, paid for that at some point in the future. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't have gone down that road. Um, the next thing that we're looking at is, and that the entire industry is looking at is something called sustainable aviation fuel. Now, SAF, you know, as, as the government looks to electrify many sectors, there are certain ones that they call hard to electrify that you're just simply not going to be able to have a battery-powered airplane at a certain point. Um, what they're looking to do at that point then is develop an airline fuel that is created sustainably. Um, kerosene and fossil fuel obviously are not, are, the, the, the current administration is not a big fan of those. So um, if you can produce an aviation fuel from ethanol or even uh, uh, soybean oil in a sustainable way, then you've got a potential huge market for your product in the future. So as we look at this market today, I mean, the, the current goal is to have about 3 billion gallons by 2030. But the entirety of the U.S. market is really 27 to 30 billion gallons. Um, we, we've seen some of the larger companies already commit to this space. If you look at ADM and Cedar Rapids and Clinton, they, they have committed their ethanol to this space. If you look at Marquis and Hennepin, Illinois, they've done the same. I believe that's what I had, and I want to just kind of leave time for any questions. I know I just covered a whole wide range of things. I wanted to throw the broad topics out there, and if anything sparked any questions, I'd be more than happy. Vanessa? I had a question on the carbon sequestration. The slide that you had showed all of the different locations throughout the Midwest. Sure. Is that a pipeline? Is that, is that what you said? And what do you do once you capture? The okay. Where does it go? Perfect. The, there are two pipelines right now um, being talked about. One from Summit Carbon Solutions um, and another from Navigator CO2. There's a couple of smaller ones, but I think these are the two that will ultimately get developed. Now, the Summit Pipeline would run from Iowa and be sequestered in North Dakota. Uh, the Navigator Pipeline runs from North Dakota and be sequestered in Southern Illinois. So what they do is, is they compress the CO2 that comes straight off of our, our CO2 scrubbers. It's a very clean form of CO2. Compress it to 2100 PSI, pipeline it down there, and they inject it. It's usually around 5,000 feet under a cap of bedrock. And under that bedrock is, is a sandstone formation. It's basically a prehistoric riverbed. So the, the CO2 will permeate through that and follow that riverbed. And over time, it does calcify. So it hardens into, into its own form of rock and is, by definition, permanently sequestered. Okay. And the, the lithium slide that you shared in Australia, is that what it is that makes the battery for the electric car or anything electric or just for cars? That's a lithium mine specifically, but yeah, that's, made, that's used mainly for batteries. When you talk about tech metals, you're talking about cobalt and, and several others. I'm not a geologist, but um, a lot of those are actually used in, in, in our national defense. Um, and I think you know, you're seeing a shortage on computer chips right now. You, maybe your new car's sitting 
uh, still at the factory because they don't have a computer chip. Um, this is this is a variation of that. Okay. Thank you, Chris. Dave, you talk a little bit about the opportunity and the uh, the high compression four cylinder engines, explosive engines. Can you talk a little bit about what the opportunity there is? Yeah, absolutely. That, in my my personal opinion, and, and I don't. Sherry Bustos had a bill called the Next Generation Fuels Act, and what it did was increase the octane standard in the United States. Today you can go by 87 octane. What this bill would have done is raise the, the low limit on octane in the United States to around 91 to 92. Um, and obviously it would increase the inclusion of ethanol because ethanol is 114 octane. So if you raise the octane of the pool of all the fuel in the United States, the auto manufacturers at that point, and they would love to do this, is build an engine that can utilize the power in a more effective way. Um, and, and, and I personally feel, uh, my, my belief is that the future of, of transportation engines and transportation fuel is, is, is a small four-cylinder aluminum engine with twin turbos with 13 to one compression versus nine to one compression today that's gonna make immensely more power and do it with a higher fuel standard. Um, instead of 23 miles per gallon, uh, with that higher octane, you're going to be able to get much more miles per gallon out of that fuel. Now, that and, and, and the electric vehicle push, I think between the two of those, it's, it's going to be interesting to see where this thing ends in, in 15 or 20 years. Um, I know which horse I'm betting on, though. <laughs> Well, th this is, that's a forecast from the EIA. Now, what, what I will tell you, I think they put in that forecast is all of those things. I think they put in, because the CAFE standards being the, the, the mile per gallon standards that new car manufacturers must adhere to is starting to come back up. Uh, I think the current administration raised those back up. So that's one. Two is definitely gonna be the efficiency that these, these newer, lighter weight motors allow um, now, whether that's driving the CAFE standards or vice versa, I don't know. The third will definitely be EV penetration. There, there's certainly some, some thought that that's going to happen. Question. Two questions. One is with Ukraine and turmoil, and that they are such humongous producers of grain, uh, I see a lot of farmers planting in Ukraine right now. So after this next harvest, is there going to be some sort Sort of crisis that you have to deal with regarding the availability of the grain? Well, it's already, the, mar the, the, the market is a discounting mechanism. If, if you look, I mean, last night, I, that's my part of my routine is to watch the market open, and wheat was up 60 cents overnight simply because the Indian, uh, the country of India came out and said, we will export no more wheat until what you just said, until the Ukrainian situation is resolved. So is there going to be a shortage? Um, no, because you have $15 wheat. In a, it, it's, it's a commodity that normally trades at between four to $6 a bushel, and it's trading at 15. So I, I have to, to the degree that uh, you can replace certain things, you, you have to assume that high prices will cure high prices at some point. 
Um, ultimately, it's not good for the farmer because even with corn and soybeans, all of these customers that we've developed for our farm communities over the years, uh, buying our, our soy products and our corn, they're going to find alternatives. And then ultimately, we know what happens after $8 corn and, and $17 beans. We go back down, um, whether it's recessionary driven or not, we go back down um, because we lose our demand base and, and those folks are utilizing something different at that point. So it, it's the bubble economy that, that we're seeing from the Federal Reserve. It, it goes to commodities as well as real estate and equities and, and everything. But So I would not say there's going to be a shortage, no. And the second question is, you mentioned exports. Where do you export it to? And also, I would assume the United States is not the only one doing this. They're having or, uh, companies just like yours in Europe we're the biggest, we, we, we have 17 billion gallons um, of production capacity. Uh, South America has around 7 billion of sugarcane production capacity. South America has in recent years built about seven ethanol plants that run on corn as well, and they're building two more. Um, and, and I'm gonna ask you to repeat your question again in a second, but <laughs> I think there is a day when we'll see an expansion of the ethanol production in the United States again, not to the degree that we saw in 08, but if you look at the size of, of the sustainable aviation fuel market at 27 to 30 billion gallons, we have 17 billion gallons of production. With what we're going, the penetration of E15 over the next few years, we don't have the production capacity to supply that market. Now, soy, Oil will take half of it, but it's still it's still not there. Now, I'm sorry. Where do you export your uh, Canada's our friend. Most of it goes to Canada. Um, from there, and it's changed. Canada's been the one consistent one year after year after year. Uh, Brazil has been a big buyer inconsistently. They actually put a tariff on us uh, in 2018. Um, so Canada, Brazil, and as of, as of late, India is a big buyer as well. Um, China, when they want to buy it, they will come in and wipe out the market. But they do it about once every five years. Um, so they're not a consistent buyer. Um, so those are your main three. It's probably a stupid question, but when you had the pipeline on, talked about movement, um, CO2 from Iowa up to North Dakota, and then you turned right around with another pipeline and, and moved stuff from that area down to Iowa. That doesn't seem to make sense to me. No. No, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you have two companies, and, well, you have really four that, um, and these companies are in a dogfight. Um, they're, they're really competing for this business. Um, and they really don't like each other very much so far. Uh, but yeah, I've stood back myself and said, they, they need to figure this out because you've got customers here, customers here, and pipe, two pipelines going by each one. Um, does it make more sense to increase the size of that pipe? But there again, without some competition, the CO2 is really gonna be our third co-product. We're gonna monetize the CO2 now. We've been monetizing the, the DDG, and the corn oil and obviously the ethanol, um, we're gonna have the ability to monetize this, 
this CO2 now. And it's, it's, a, it's a free and open market, so there's several companies competing. And it's good in a way because I don't think we would have been able to structure the deal that we did if there were only one company. So, but it, it definitely is redundant. Yes, yeah, who's making the corn market eight dollars a bushel? What's the cause of that? Well, that's the Ukraine situation. Is the first and foremost. Shoot. Are they going to have any grain in Ukraine? They have twenty percent of their crop planted. At least that's what it was uh, last week. So they're they're about twenty to twenty-five percent behind what they would normally be. Um, so no, the grain supply is going to definitely be stressed for the next couple of years. Um, it's huge. I'm just glad they're getting anything planted because, I mean, when it first broke out, our assumption was that they wouldn't be able to plant anything, depending on what type of war, you know, unfolded. And luckily, it's they are getting some crops in the ground, but you know, they they provide about a third of the feed grains uh, to the world. Um, you know, most of that being wheat. Um, and the Black Sea port on the Crimea there is a huge export uh, pull. Now, Russia's controlled that for a while, but they have continued to let exports go through that up until recently. Um, the problem we're running into now is, even if it were open, there, there, aren't, a sh there aren't shipping companies that want to go into the Black Sea. They, their insurance companies will simply will not cover them. It's mined. Um, and I can't say that I blame them. So it's definitely a, it's definitely an issue. Somebody said that John Deere uh, sh uh, shut off their chips in the Ukraine where the tractors couldn't run on the, on the, the chips that's coming around. Have you heard anything about that? No, I saw the Russians stole about five five million or five billion dollars worth of John Deere equipment from the Ukrainians, but I didn't I didn't see that. No. <laughs> uh, now, do I understand this right? One, one plant, one ethanol plant might use corn, and some other one might use soybeans, but no. can't use a mix? No. Um, corn is the main, use, the main feedstock for ethanol in the United States. In South America, it's sugarcane. Um, now, there are some plants in Texas that will try and run on milo, which is a small grain. But it's very hard on equipment. Uh, it tends to tear things up. Um, now, soybeans can be processed, obviously, into soybean oil. Now, that soybean oil is is used is going to be used to a much greater degree for biodiesel, um, renewable diesel, and that's what we're seeing. You will see a build out in the soy crush industry, similar to what you've seen in the ethanol industry in 05 to 08. Um, and that's because a lot of these oil companies, Phillips 66 is one of them, they're taking these old shuttered refineries in California and they're repurposing them to produce uh, renewable diesel. Now there's, there's obviously tax credits that are, that, are, that are driving that as well. Um, but I know of at least, I want to say, five Bio, or five soy crush facilities in Iowa that will be constructed. One of them is already done, and there's three to four more that will be coming online in the next five years. Now, if you look at North Dakota, South Dakota, and Nebraska, they have several soy crush facilities coming online as well. The limiting factor ultimately is going to be uh, tillable acres. 
for all of these biofuels. That's why I get frustrated when I see solar panels going on flat, black, rich, central Illinois uh, <laughs> farm ground. So. Well, if you have an E85 vehicle, there's just there's different energy uh, uh, density in a gallon of ethanol versus a gallon of, of you know, regular fuel. Um, what he's calculating is the price difference. <coughs> E85 is always cheaper, generally. So if it's cheap enough uh, that you can buy it and still um, get the same, have the same cost per gallon, that's what he's calculating. Well, I think he was calculating more cost per mile to drive Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, cost per mile. And is that, and is that consistent across all kinds of vehicles? Or? No, I think, uh, yeah, you're always going to have a, for, for E85, you're definitely going to have a reduction in mileage, not, not as much for E10 or E15. Uh, whatever you want, actually. <laughs> I would put E88 in it, but yeah. Really? So yeah, it's higher compression, or it's a higher octane. And that board will run on that, okay? Uh, yeah, it will. Is it approved for that? Probably not. Small, all, if you think about E15 in the United States, 96% uh, of the cars on the road are approved for E15. Now they have not they have not gone down the next step of of approving that for lawnmowers and and small gas engines and boats. Well, a boat would would be an outboard would be a little different, but um, it's not for it's not because it wouldn't work. It's just because the the regulatory process is just so cumbersome. So I can't look in my owner's manual. It'll tell you. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you said now, aviation not goes to electricity. Why is that? The batteries just aren't light enough uh, to. Uh, the, you, you lose you lose energy density with a battery even to a greater degree, um, and there the weight. And the amount of energy density in it just—it's just the the physics just aren't going to work. Yeah. Now, unless somebody invents a, a battery that's way more efficient and way lighter than the current ones. China would like the other one. Steel. Steel one. They wanted that one. Oh yeah. <laughs> Any others? Thank you, everyone.
coming to talk to us about the Mammoth College Farm. So we'll hopefully see you all then. Serve to change lives. Mm -hmm. 